This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Australian composer and conductor Gordon Hamilton. Gordon joined me on the show to talk about his symphony, Far South, which was inspired by his voyage to Antarctica on board the icebreaker Aurora Australis. Gordon's piece is having its world premiere in Melbourne and will be performed by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Now, um, I'm really delighted that I'll be having my next guest join me on this show, Gordon Hamilton, the man we are about to have a conversation with. Gordon is a composer and a conductor, and he uh, is going to be in Melbourne very soon for the world premiere of his performance piece, uh, a great symphony called Far South, which he composed whilst he was over in Antarctica on an Australian vessel, the Aurora Australis, which uh, is quite well known I'm sure to a number of people and uh, was reaching its 30th year in service to uh, Australians going and making that trip over to Antarctica. It is an icebreaker which is obviously important if you're going to the coldest place on earth and it's um, obviously no doubt a a source of artistic inspiration for many people, including Gordon Hamilton, uh, the composer and conductor we are about to chat with right now. So I'm welcoming Gordon now over Skype and uh, thank you so much, Gordon, for joining us today. Hello, Amy. Thank you. My pleasure. Hi. Thanks so much for for coming on the show and talking about your work. I uh, was really interested to see this piece sitting on the performance list for the upcoming performance at the Hamer Hall on Thursday and Saturday this week because it sits beside some really wonderful pieces including my favourite symphony of all time by Strauss called an Alpine Symphony and it seems quite aptly named and related to your piece because it it is particularly dramatic and moving and sublime and, and certainly so is Antarctica. And so first up I wanted to ask you how you came to get on a boat, but not just any boat, an icebreaker, as part of the Australian expedition to Antarctica. Yes, well, actually, it's great that you bring up those um, other pieces because an Alpine Symphony by Strauss is a great, great work. And yes, the program, I guess, is unified by um, landscape pieces. So that's kind of cool. But yes, I was on this boat, big orange famous Australian icon, the Aurora Australis. Um, and I came to be on that boat because every year the Australian Antarctic Division, um, part of the Department of Energy, um, they send an artist to Antarctica. It's part of the Australian Antarctic Division's Arts Fellowship. And the particular fellowship I got was called an Aurora Legacy Fellowship, which they gave out um, to to me in, um, in honour of the Aurora Australis uh, retiring, which it's just done and and so my job my piece my project was to uh, not only capture antarctica and the spirit of um, adventure um, but also to um, honor the boat herself the aurora australis so um yes i was on this boat we went down to antarctica it took two weeks and um then we were there at casey station and i Spent some time going out onto the station and exploring, going out into the field, making recordings. 
uh, and sleeping every night on the Aurora Australis. So we take a rubber ducky back in to um, to sleep there because um, at Casey Station there's there's no uh, place for it to moor. It has to um, be sitting about a kilometre out to sea uh, in a bay, so it's very calm. But uh, yeah, so I got to know the mm. Aurora Australis really well, and then it took about uh, two weeks coming back as well because um, as luck or unluck would have it, we got stuck in the ice. So it was a bit of an adventure. Interesting. I've heard that icebreakers um, can often get stuck and in recent memory, I think another country's icebreaker was called upon to get that uh, ship out of Antarctica. So it sounds like it can be quite um, unpredictable in terms of the weather and the sea conditions. Oh, yeah. You're 100% at the mercy of mother nature it's uh quite scary at times and especially in uh, a place like antarctica uh the winds are very intense much more intense than we used to um in suburban australia and um you know you just can't control what's going on around you and indeed that that was one of the main themes of the music that i composed um just this uh mother nature's indifference to humans and as a human being there, you have to be, uh, just be like an oak tree in the wind and just go where, um, where circumstances force you to go. Yes, exactly. And, and hope that you're as robust as an oak tree. <laughs> yes. Well, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ship may be. <laughs> the ship might be, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I did read in your recounting of your trip that, um, there were some really massive swells that certainly caused a bit of an upset stomach. Oh my goodness. Fenergan. That's the drug we took. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Forever grateful. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I thought, I thought going into it, I mean, I'd never spent very long on a ship, but I just thought, oh, I'll be right. I've got an iron stomach. Um, and uh, no, I don't. <laughs> when, <laughs> when it starts, it's just awful. It, it hurts in the soul, I reckon. Mm. When you um, when you get seasick, you just can't concentrate on anything else. So that happened a few times. This massive swell. You take the sleep, the um, the seasickness tablets, and they make you drowsy. So it's not fun when when that's all happening, and it goes on for days. Um, but yeah, it's pretty um, humbling and scary to look out um, at the Great Southern Ocean. This huge swell, and you're just uh, on a little um, orange uh, floaty thing in the middle of this gigantic ocean. Yeah. And given that you're facing such extreme conditions and you're on a boat or a ship with a number of other uh, people, I'm assuming they were predominantly scientists. How did you get along and, and interact on such a kind of significant and fairly long voyage? Well, yes, you're right. They were um, partly scientists, probably half and half scientists and tradies. So there are a lot of um, uh, sparkies and um, plumbers and people like that. Well, we got on great because you form a little community, of course. Mm. There are about 80 of us going down and we eat together and um, socialise together, play games, make music. There's a little um, – there's a, a room called the bar, uh, which used to be a bar, but in these modern times – uh, someone deemed it no longer safe or appropriate to be <laughs> getting sloshed while out in, um, in four kilometres deep uh, ocean. And um, 
uh, and so we we got on really well. Uh, it was it was a real pleasure. And there's a there's a great tradition on the Aurora Australis of um, every night at seven o'clock, uh, a scientist gives a presentation about her or his uh, work that they're uh, conducting in Antarctica. And uh, I enjoyed going to some of those. And I was really pleased that they invited me to give a talk about my music. And um, actually, I gave two talks in the end, one about my project and one about music in general, um, which was a great pleasure. And it was so nice to see all these uh, very interested scientists and tradies uh, coming along to my talk and uh, engaging in something that is totally different to the normal type of work that takes place in Antarctica. Mm. But yeah, we got a great. And it sounds like you would have had a captive audience given that uh, I believe internet was not really available. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, we, don't, we only got, um, we got intranet, not internet. Ah. So we were able to, I was given a little um, email address uh, that was the only way of contacting anyone. And so um, oh, what did we watch? We watched that um, that horror movie set in Antarctica. What's it called? Oh, I can't remember. The famous one anyway with um, uh, the flamethrower. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, we got to the end of the movie and the file was corrupted and it wouldn't play. We missed the last 10 minutes of the movie oh. and we could not look it up on Wikipedia <laughs> how it finished. And it was so frustrating. So I emailed my girlfriend and asked her to copy and paste the Wikipedia page into an email back to me. And then I was the hero. I saved the evening by reading out the end of that movie. Oh, everyone oh. listening is yelling it out at the radio right now. Everyone knows what it is. Yeah, I don't um, know. <laughs> but the story's I'm, still hilarious. I'm, just it up now. <laughs> Antarctica. I'm on Google now. Antarctica horror movie. That's flame. great that your girlfriend could step in and, and help out. I know. <laughs> yeah, the thing. That's right. The thing. Nineteen eighty-two. Oh wow, that's yeah. so wonderful. Um, Classic. <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch it now. I don't tend to watch horror movies because I get scared. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, I think a lot of people might be interested in your physical and I guess visceral experience of Antarctica, uh, because no doubt that might have played into how you experienced it, understood it, got a perspective about the environment that you were in. And for those, I mean, a lot of people go, oh, yes, it's cold. But, like, physically, how does it feel to be out near Casey Station, you know, out in the snow um, with icebergs not far away? What's the kind of experience like? Yeah. Well, for a start, it's not that cold in summer. It was um, between minus 5 and 0 Oh, uh, so mild. Days. Yeah, <laughs> middle of summer. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically like, more of like, like a Scottish winter. In, in winter. Yeah, I know. And and what's more, in the sun, in direct sunlight, it would get quite warm. Mm. You know, because it's just like a hot summer's day. Um, the air is still minus five, but the sun would make it quite hot to stand in one place. And if you're doing work, um, then you can get quite warm. People, lots of workers I saw were. Um, wearing just heavy shirts rather than um, big um, coats. And, but they do issue the, um, the standard issue um, kind of heavy-duty, you can survive in anything suit, which I had to put on uh, to travel across the water in the rubber ducky from the ship to the shore. And so that's the sort of suit that, you know, you could fall down a crevice and still survive for 
20 hours. That kind oh, of thing. Wow, so yeah. that was quite heavy and rather uncomfortable. You wouldn't want to spend too long in this suit, but that is the kind of um, survival gear that they, they give you. And, um, you know, it's probably for the best. But, yeah, it's uh, surprisingly mild some days. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a sauna on the Aurora Australis, which I put to good use with my scientist friends. And we used to um, run out of the sauna and then onto the deck of the Aurora Australis, uh, basically just in board shorts. And that was a great feeling, <laughs> amazing feeling. <laughs> Definitely wake you up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but then um, it, it, it is, you know, it's still very, very cold and very windy. Uh, it's the wind that is the killer, of course. Mm. And so I remember one day we um, went for a walk from Casey Station out to the Mitchell Peninsula, about a half an hour walk. And um, it was windy and um, snowy. And sitting still for just a few minutes really became very cold. You know, you really need to protect your face, um, hands, in order to not you know, get really cold in those areas. And um, the uh, the um, the silence was one of the incredible things that I noticed in Antarctica. It's something that many people talk about, having gone to Antarctica. That when you when you stand out there in just on the ice. Um, there are no trees, of course, um, to be rustling in the wind. There are birds, but often you're not around the birds. And um, this, the ice and snow soak up the sound. So you can be seeing this gigantic panorama, cinematic vision of um, icebergs and glaciers. Uh, and you expect it to have some noise to go with it, some wind or some um, rustling of trees and it's just completely silent you see it's one of those strange experiences that you never have in ordinary life the experience of complete silence where the only thing you can hear is your own blood vessels mm. um, and so that was very uh, shocking actually but something i wanted to include in my piece so there are some sweeping silences in my composition um, and other parts of my composition that just seem to um, remain static for longer than you, than the listener might expect. Yes, um, and in this world of constant change and movement and noise, it's interesting how people might respond to those moments of long silence or long periods of static uh, noise and, you know, just enabling yourself to, I guess, become immersed in something like that and to sit with it. That's the thing. That's exactly right. And that's the beautiful thing about music in general is you are just sitting still, doing nothing, experiencing sound. Uh, so that's, I think, the reason that I like music so much, mm. and most people do. It's, just, uh, it's like going inside yourself into your imagination uh, for long periods at a time. Yeah. And so when we're looking at uh, this piece that you've written, there are some really interesting elements to it. And um, I had a quick look at the score to get oh, an cool. idea. Yeah. yeah um, luckily, I know vaguely how to read music from my life ah, in <laughs> singing. That was my next question. What do you play? What's your instrument? Uh, I was actually a classical singer. Nice. And yeah, I know. I did my exams. Oh, yeah, um, like full on opera? Not uh, opera, no, no, like more, more like um, classical leader. Um, um, yeah, because yeah, yeah. I'm actually an alto slash 
somewhat of a tenor, so it's kind of none of the songs were ever <laughs> written for me. <laughs> I fell in that awkward position of not fitting the soprano. Uh, I could still do it, but it just didn't feel very good to yeah. do that. Yeah, so it's always been really interesting. I sometimes sit with the tenors and uh, have a very interesting experience. It's definitely yeah. life is different um, as a tenor than as an alto as yeah. I'm sure many people who sing would be aware of the politics. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did that and I also did a little bit of flute. But I'm certainly very, very impressed by everyone who can play an instrument at any level. And it was really great to see some of the strings in your second movement, Seven, which oh, yeah. also has the Icebreaker audio track across it as well. When you're writing for different instruments and obviously each movement is quite different if you're over in Antarctica and you've got your your phone a pen and paper how are you thinking about these kind of elements because for example for those who are listening in seven there's um, violins viola cello double bass and that beautiful environmental soundtrack in the background what are the things you're thinking of as a composer when there are so many different pieces of the puzzle and you potentially don't have a piano on hand did you bring any kind of instrument with you to play around I did. I brought a mini keyboard, my little MPK mini, oh, which is a, a two-octave keyboard. It's the most beautiful, cute, cute as a button, this little <laughs> thing. And it fits inside a backpack. So I just brought that and I was able to have a little bit of a tinker uh, from time to time. But um, look, I, I composed every day, all day. Um, for just And I, I purposefully did not plan it too much. I just composed things that were on my mind that were extensions of what I did yesterday or new ideas. I just did anything all day long and wrote a lot of music. And I ended up writing too much music. It ended up being about uh, 40 minutes of music that I composed. And um, and the piece that I've finished is 20 minutes. Uh, and what I realized was that I was writing two different types of music there. There were fully composed, scored pieces of music for um, all the instruments that were just like a complete score that can be played. But then I wrote a lot of music that was um, a little bit chance or graphic scored or unusually scored. So I would um, write things like, for example, uh, several pieces I wrote um, had a list of notes at the start of the piece and then only rhythms mm. that I composed and that all the musicians are allowed to play any of the notes at the start that are listed at the start, but then play the rhythms that are notated. And so this is called, this is an idea of chance music. And then I realized that about half the music I wrote was chance music. And <laughs> I, uh, I decided this, oh, Siri's getting That's in on the interview. Siri, Siri wants to join in. <laughs> Shut up, Siri. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I realized that I think that all of the chance music belonged in one piece together. And that's what this piece, Far South, turned out to be. So actually, um, every movement has an element of chance in it. Uh, for example, uh, it's scored for a bed of strings plus four solo instruments, which can be any instrument you mm. like, plus extra instruments, which could also be any instruments you like. And the musicians and the conductor are supposed to just figure it out. So those four solo instruments could be four synthesizers. They could be four voices. They could be four piccolos. They could be a French horn, um, a back desk viola, and 
um, the trombone, if you like. And so these are different ways of making the piece uh, come to life in drastically different ways. And, and then I wrote these um, extra parts for any instruments. And in our case with MSO, these are going to be the, the guts of the wind and brass and percussion, these extra instruments. And the four solo instruments will be piccolo, French, or uh, third horn. So not even the first horn, but the third mm. horn, the uh, back desk cello. So the very last cellist, not the first cellist who normally <laughs> plays the solos, but the very last cellist um, and a clarinet. So um, that's how we're realizing it in this case. Um, but I'd love to do a version, for example, with just strings and synthesizers, which yeah. would sound um, you know, like a different piece of music. And the reason I think I wrote such trance music is my overwhelming feeling being in Antarctica was not being in control, mm. um, just just going with the flow, having to just deal with whatever was presented to me. It's windy today. We can't go out. Today it's sunny. We've got to go out. Um, you know, uh, all sorts of situations where I just was not the person in control. And so I think subconsciously I wrote music where I, the composer, am not really even in control. And um, the musicians have this this plan whereby they – improvise they you know it's all controlled somehow it's part of a plan but it's all somewhat up to chance in a way that i can't really um control it for example in one of the movements i've written out a um one of as i as i mentioned before the notes the pitches at the start are what they're allowed to play and then a whole rhythmic uh piece and they split it off into three groups and play play that one piece of music Three, in three different tempos, in three different groups, with three different musicians from the orchestra leading their group. And so it should turn into this beautiful cacophony of wind and ice and um, melting things and uh, powerful um, icebergs and things like that. But really, I mean, I have a basic idea of how it might sound, but I can't control, you know, the second-to-second uh, -second kind of detail about how, the, how they're going to play that. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's a piece. I would say the uh, the overwhelming feeling in, in my piece is something that there's a force of nature happening, and nobody's in control. That's quite uh, well scary, maybe for some people who are used to having things set out very clearly for them in more traditional um, classical pieces, where you know sometimes the the composer's been very prescriptive and very uh, absolutely yeah, yes. Precise. For example, in, in the Strauss. The Strauss um, mm. uh, Alpine Symphony is probably at the zenith of composers being um, very specific in their music about how um, how it should be played. And I mean, that's the beauty of the orchestra, this modern institution that we have, is that it's so efficient. An orchestra can play any piece of music, professional orchestra, especially like MSO, can play any piece of music immediately. You could practically press record on the first sight read and it's likely to be Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it's because of the, the this whole efficient system where the composer knows how to write for the orchestra. The orchestra musicians know how to play their instruments and read the mm. part. The conductor knows how to show the information with the, her or his hands uh, that's necessary. And that's um, a beautiful thing. And I was, I, I was very careful writing this because normally I also try to give very clean, perfect parts to musicians so that there are no questions, so that there are, we can just do it, so that if they're turning up to work and they don't care about the piece, they can just do a good job and um, not have to talk to me. 
Um, <laughs> so, so I completely buy into that whole idea. It's very important that a composer master this um, these techniques. But and so with this piece, when I wrote somewhat um, chance elements, I was very careful. I hope to still express it in an idea in a way to the musician that lets them crystal clear understand what I'm telling them, if that makes sense, and what the yeah. rules are about the improvisation and uh, how much freedom to take, how much freedom not to take. So um, so still I hope that the musicians are invited into you know a space where they can follow instructions in a, you know, a perfect way. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so there's still a framework for for exactly. a piece. And it was interesting um, to see some of the descriptive terms you use for the instruments, like one of the pieces you describe it as circular bowing, airy, dusty, gentle. How does Oh, yeah, a, this is a great technique. Yeah. Anybody listening, if you have a violin, an old violin that you used to play, or a cello or a viola, you can get it out and try. Um, you know what this means is using the bow to play in a circular motion close to the bridge. So you play one note, say, whatever, in middle C, and then you're just uh, basically bowing up and down, um, but in a circular motion, so it's always very smooth. And, and at one end of the circle, you're coming up onto the bridge. And so it goes, that's called sul ponticello. It's a very um, kind of metallic sound. And so when you play like this, it, it turns a clean note into one that has little pops and crackles and holes in it. And when many musicians do this at the same time, it just sounds so magical. It's just shimmering. It turns a, a clean note into a shimmering note. So, yes, that's why I've um, – but I'm, I'm very surprised by how many string players don't know this technique. And really? So, um, I've written it a few times in different pieces, and I felt very uh, superior and happy <laughs> to be able to, for once, explain something to a string player. Normally they're explaining things to me, uh, which I always appreciate. But, yes, I felt very chuffed oh, wow. to occasionally – well, it's like this, and you just pick up their instrument and, and show them as if I, as if I'm Yehudi Menuhin. <laughs> and so, in terms of your understanding as a conductor and a composer, what kind of instruments did you learn, and what brought you into classical music? Well, I learned piano as a kid, uh, and went through my, all my grades, and then studied for a bachelor of music, majoring in piano and composition in Newcastle, and. Uh, but what, when I started my undergraduate, I also, I also started um, beginner violin because I wanted to be a composer and I felt that it'd be good to just have a basic understanding of the violin. So mm -hmm. I scratched away on the violin for three years and got up to about grade five. So I have a pretty good piano and um, very scrapey, scratchy violin skills. But still, <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful for those basic skills. And it's just some idea of how the bow works and where the fingers go and why certain double stops and triple stops are possible those are when you play multiple notes at once or multiple strings at once yeah. on a string instrument and they can create a great sound but you can also um, make a string player your enemy if you write ones that are um, uncomfortable or make them sound bad composer you know musicians love it when a composer makes them sound good mm. and they hate it when um, the composer makes them sound bad makes them sound like a beginner violinist and that's uh you know the the line we walk as composers yeah yeah and so now 
given this performance is happening uh, Thursday and Saturday, I see that there'll be a conductor who is not yourself um, conducting the orchestra and conducting your piece as well as the other two pieces on the lineup. And uh, his mm. name is Alexander Shelley. How do you, as a composer, work with the conductor who might be putting your piece into a performance, into reality? And what's that kind of working relationship like? Is it hands off or is it involved or does it vary? Well, my, I've, I've composed many pieces that have been conducted by someone else, and I always enjoy this process. I mean, I am a conductor, so I can do it myself, and I often do conduct my own music as well as music of others. But uh, I, well, I, I want to be helpful in this circumstance, but I, because I also want Alexander, who is a great conductor, by the way, very um, well-respected, well-known all around the world, British conductor, uh, I, I want him to uh, take ownership over the piece, make his decisions, make his own observations. He's going to notice things in the score that I haven't thought of. And especially in a piece like this, oh, series still around, especially in a piece like this, where um, I've on purpose made things a bit up to chance, it's 100% in the spirit of this piece that he and the musicians make their own choices and if anything is just totally off the wall, I, I might ask politely for something to be different. Uh, but, you know, basically I want them to run with it and have fun and um, make some surprising decisions within the parameters of the score. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's asked me some questions which are very astute and very um, interesting questions. And I was very pleased to answer those. So, yeah, I, I try to be a force for good and just help when help is needed and stay out of the way when it's not needed. <laughs> Sounds like a very good plan. And I was also interested in how you incorporate some of the environmental sounds that you recorded over in Antarctica. I'm thinking, for example, in the movement uh, Whale Song, where you've got um, you've recorded a whale. Can you remind me the species of the whale was... Uh... It's a finback whale. Finback, that's right. Um, so, finback. And so, how did yes, you Brian, think? Oh, of, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. How did you think about that when you were putting that soundtrack together, and then um, moving or adding instrumentation in at different points? What are the some of the thoughts that you had, and also around, I guess, the concept of whale song, which is really clearly important to that part of the movement when you're using music as a way to evoke something that is real that you've experienced firsthand what are some of the ways that you might um, approach that and have approached that in this piece well i was on the aurora australis going down to antarctica and we picked up this um object in the southern ocean this is the first mission of the aurora australis going down pick up this uh hydrophone that had been recording audio of marine mammals for one year so that imagine a, you know you open up a, a wave file on your computer and it goes for two minutes well this one went for one year and uh wow. somebody very clever had um cut out all of the boring bits <laughs> and got it down to examples of different uh mammals and uh i had to listen through to these different examples and there was one bit this finback whale in the, who sang in d minor and I thought, wow, it's so beautiful and so unusual to hear this this animal so removed from our ordinary lives, you know, somewhere in the Southern Ocean, singing in a scale that I recognise. <laughs> and 
So I wrote it down. I notated what the whale sang. And then I harmonized it in three parts. And so the whale, of course, is singing extremely low, much lower than we can sing. So low that we can actually barely hear it. But there's still frequencies. There's still notes. And you can hear it just. Uh, it's like way, way down at the bottom of the piano. If you go and play uh, in the bottom two octaves of the piano, that's where this whale is singing. And I, um, so I harmonized it much, much higher in a violins register. So I harmonized it for three violins, uh, just in you know beautiful, simple chords, a bit like a hymn, something you might hear in a church service, but not quite. And, um, and so when it's played and sung together, hopefully you hear this kind of human world and the violins and the whale world down in the depths coming together and singing together, but still separated by so many octaves that you still feel this separation between humans and animals. And I think what will happen in this part of the symphony is the, the whale will play through the speakers and I hope the building will shake because it's so low frequency. It should be kind of a visceral, physical feeling in your chest. Um, I hope that's what happens. I hope they turn the volume up <laughs> and uh, they don't. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope they turn the volume up. Yeah, yeah because um, in three movements of my six-movement symphony, there are field recordings from Antarctica. You get to mm. hear ice and snow and water and whales and things in different parts. Well, that's interesting you say the vibrations because that's why I sit on the double bass side so I can feel the vibrations of their instruments I know it's good, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, yeah. I know I'm a bit biased, yeah. but it's. I feel like the double bass side's a better experience. You can still hear the violins because they're so you know high pitched from yeah. far away. There's a guy in QSO, the Queensland Symphony, Paul. Uh, I forget his last name, but he plays bass, and he, he always got this gig, gigantic smile on his face when he's playing in, mm. the, in the orchestra. It's so fun to watch, and I imagine if I had to play, if I could play uh, an instrument in the orchestra, I would choose double bass being the lowest voice is you know so interesting the fundament of the mm. harmony and as you say that, that feeling of vibration it's so cool and you don't get that with headphones as much as i love my Bose headphones you don't get to um have the feeling in your chest with the bass yes exactly and i just noticed that in the whale song piece it says harmonization but it also says that the the instruments are playing with the whale and you can see that the timing is um complementary how did you work that how does that even happen (laughs) well um, i've done a bit of this sort of stuff before where i take sounds from the real world or sounds from human speech and and harmonize them so I, um, I bring it, pull it into a uh, session in Logic Pro, or, you know, uh, which is just a audio editing program, and listen to the recording many times and try to find where the natural rhythm is, where the natural pulse tempo is. And so, you know, normally there's a tempo that something is happening in, or you know, you can sort of force it into a tempo. That's if it's just uh, just with luck. And in this case, the, the whale was in 80 beats per minute, more or less. And so I then. Then the next step was to write the notes out of the whale. Um, so I've got then, of course, a click track going in my software, and I can hear exactly where we are in the bar at all times. So I can hear that the whale moves to the next note on the third beat. So I just write that down, notate it in normal Western notation. And once I have that, um, that's the new benchmark that I harmonize. I pretend that the notes are really clean, they're really perfect, 
and just harmonize around that. And it usually helps in, in circumstances like this to actually have one instrument doubling the whatever natural sound I'm using. Um, and in this case, I doubled the whale up about six octaves higher. So you still get to hear the whale in its clean state without anyone covering it exactly in that octave. But then there is one violin uh, six octaves higher doubling the whale uh, precisely. So that it, And that kind of pulls the whale into tune a little bit mm. because you've got one instrument playing really accurately in tune. It sort of helps the imagination place the real sound, in this case a whale, uh, exactly on the note because sometimes the whale's a little bit around the pitch or a little bit before the beat, that sort of thing. So it's it helps to, um, to do that. Yeah. And um, just looking at the last movement, given that it's almost kind of funny to – find out what the ending is before you've seen the whole thing. But I really was interested in all the dynamics that you play with and especially at the end because when you think about pieces like Strauss's uh, Alpine Symphony, what really strikes you um, in that piece is the huge percussive instruments that are like loud and bellow and grumble and gets really quite um, epic at the end. And I was really interested in the way that you've decided to finish your symphony could you share with us what your thinking was around that and all the ranges you go from um being a an f to a 4p so a pianissimo mm. something like that like there's piano pianissimo and then you can times that by two yes that's right you keep adding is pianissimo yeah you go theoretically forever um <laughs> yes well this piece that it ends very quietly my piece uh and it ends with the feeling, well, as I said before, of silence. So um, uh, in the final movement, you hear these little two and three note phrases with beautiful chords punctuated by long silences. And um, and what fills the silence is the audio track, which is just a recording of ice melting. And so um, these silences in the score, they're represented by a bar of rest with a pause over the top, a fermata. And these can go for as long as 15 seconds, 20 seconds, as long as the the mood dictates. And um, right at the end, it gets quieter and quieter, impossibly quiet, and they're just repeating two chords over and over again. Uh, and then what I ask for in the score is that the musicians stop playing and hum these two notes instead, and they drift out of time. So the orchestra becomes a choir, and then if all goes to plan, we have to work this out still um if all goes to plan the musicians leave the stage they put the instruments down and walk off humming their two notes very very softly while this recording of ice melting plays and fades to nothing so you're left with an empty stage empty antarctica no humans just this uh, everlasting infinite white landscape Wow, that sounds amazing. I can picture that in my mind. And what a fascinating challenge for an orchestra to engage in and use their vocal cords. I know, it's shocking, <laughs> isn't it? I'm, you know, I, 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 I have to give them permission to not do that, of course, because yes. they're, not, they're not there for their professional singing abilities. But uh, any musician who says they can't sing is lying. Uh, and most mm. musicians like to sing, actually, you know. It's a pleasure to use your voice, sing a few notes. Uh, it always feels good and it always sounds way better than one expects. So, you know, there might be a few who have never done it before, but um, I think actually they will uh, enjoy it. 
Yeah. It's been so fascinating to hear about the thinking behind this piece and also just how unique and contemporary it is in the way that it's been composed. And I can't wait to see how it all unfolds. And it's uh, really exciting that the MSO is doing the world premiere of this piece, Far South. Um, And I believe the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra will also be performing it at a later stage. At a later stage. They haven't set a date yet, but Tasmania, if you're listening, it's time to get a wriggle on. We need to set a date. Exactly. It's great that it's making the rounds and it's going to get across the ocean, across Bass Strait to Tasmania, which is, of course, where the um, Aurora Australis would always leave from as well. So yes. Has- yes. A great connection there. So people, if they wanted to attend the performance, it is on Thursday the 5th of March at 7.30pm at Hamer Hall and it's also on Saturday the 7th of March at 2pm, which is a civilised matinee, at Hamer Hall as well. And there'll also be a piano concerto by Grieg and, as mentioned, the uh, Alpine Symphony by Strauss, which is going to be fantastic. So... um, I hope people can get along. Will you be getting down to see your own symphony performed? Yes, I'll be there uh, on Thursday night, uh, not Saturday, but Thursday night. And I'm giving, uh, oh, I'm in the pre-concert talk on Thursday night. So oh, fantastic. Please come along and, uh, you know, voice your complaints <laughs> at the pre-concert talk. <laughs> it's been so wonderful chatting with you, Gordon, and congratulations on what is a beautiful piece and um, people can uh, look it up online to get an idea of what it's all about if um, they're even more interested and they can also check out your website which has more information about your compositions as well. Yes, indeed. Hamilton-g.com has a bit about this on on my blog and uh, on my Instagram I put some of my photos from Antarctica. Gordon underscore Ham is my Instagram handle. So Excellent. I hope to uh, catch some people there. Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today and uh, I hope you enjoy the performance of your piece. Yeah, thanks, Amy. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Gordon Hamilton, who is a conductor and a composer, and he has composed a symphony called Far South, which is inspired by his voyage to Antarctica on the Aurora Australis, and it is having its world premiere this Thursday and also then Saturday by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra alongside um, those two other pieces that I mentioned, and uh, you can check out all the details on the MSO website and I should mention that if you are um, I think if you're under 35 you can get muso tickets um, which is really a a cheaper rate than the normal rate um, if you are say a university student or someone who is fascinated by classical music and in a younger age bracket then um, that can also be an option for you if you think that um, sometimes classical music can be beyond your price range never fear there are certainly ways that you can attend and uh, I definitely think this one is going to be well worth going to. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.